This is Darker Days Radio, episode number 68. That's right, coming back only two weeks later for another epic episode. I'm, of course, one of your hosts, Mike, and tonight I'm joined by Chris. How's it going, Chris? Uh, pretty good, yeah. Um, we'll talk about hobby stuff in a bit, because I've got some cool gear, but yeah, good over- otherwise. And we're also joined by Matt. How do you, Matt? I'm doing fine. Excellent. I haven't really been doing much different over the past two weeks, but nah. we have a lot to talk about. We do, we do. Absolutely. You got any hobby stuff in there, Mike? You been up to anything? Uh, yeah, yeah. We uh, we played some Shadowrun. Uh, the, <laughs> the player characters might have blown up a plane full of innocent people, and um, that that was that was shocking. That was a little shocking. Hmm. I knew it could have happened, but I didn't think they were actually going to do it. Wow. So, so uh... that's going that's <laughs> to be something to explore in the next couple sessions. Mm-mm. Cool. What to do when your players turn into terrorists. Uh, yeah, yeah, pretty much. Hmm. And Chris, how about you? Uh, anything good going on? Um, I've almost finished painting every basic miniature that's used in Kingdom Death, so I've got one more, which is called the Butcher. I'll finish him off tonight. I've made a whole load of uh, 40k uh, scenery, so you know the city, the cities of death, whatever it's called. So um, put that all together because I basically want to use it to play some Necromunda. Um, and I've been prepping the pre-generated characters. Well, semi-generated. The players told me kind of what character types they wanted. Uh, I've just done the hard work for them. Uh, for Iron Kingdoms. So they will be playing a group of um, of the Corvus City Watch as they get sent out to investigate the strange going-ons in uh, the town of Geddon, just on the uh, border uh, to the... Um, to the, uh, what's the name of the woods? The Thornwoods, on the border to Cador mm. in the uh, Iron Kingdom setting. So this is the same story I've run. Uh, I ran the first time I ever started playing Iron Kingdom, so I'm going to tighten up a few things, because obviously, since that first came out, Privacy Press has made lots of stuff available. It made life a bit easy, and I can tweak it. So it will be miniatures heavy, um, and yeah, it should be quite interesting. We've got like a, a gun mage... Well, a gun mage bounty hunter, a officer, a military officer, um, rifleman. So he's a bit like Sharp, very much like Sharp, actually. Oh, cool. Um, we've got an Ogren, uh, an Ogren bounty hunter pugilist, which basically, so pugilist is an extra career that was in a book. So he's basically like a boxer. So while everyone else is using guns and swords, this Ogren is literally just going to punch people out. So. Um, Ogren are very good at doing that. Oh, yeah. Oh, he's also, because of that, because he's an unarmed combat person, he's very good with improvised weapons. So I'm hoping in the story he will just go sod it and pick up a table and break it over the head of someone. Because <laughs> oh, then that will just highlight what his character does. Um, and we've got a Gobber Alchemist Investigator who is basically like 
Sherlock Holmes mixed with Bugsy Malone, I think, is the way the characters can be played. Um, yeah, so that's all really exciting. Um, and just lamenting the fact that Games Workshop's new box game is very expensive because I just want the jeans to look cultists out of it because we've been waiting 20 years for those miniatures. Yeah, um, and they're really good looking, but yeah, again, they're stuck in a, uh, you said 100 quid, so about 150 US dollars. For a box game, and the game rules look kind of naff. Uh, from the playthrough I've seen. But the miniatures would be great for Necromunda because uh, uh, Gene Silicolt is, you know, wicked like that. Uh, yeah, that's basically hobby-wise for me. Um, oh, other than um, I got my Chronicles of Darkness core book through in the post. That's a premium hardback. So I'll put some pictures up comparing that to my first edition World of Darkness, New World of Darkness book, um, just so we can see what it's like. Awesome, yeah, that'd be great to check out. Cool. Uh, Matt, got anything going on? Uh, not much. Most of what I've been doing lately has been video games, because there's a lot of good games coming out in the past month and the upcoming month. Right on. Have you beaten uh, XCOM 2 yet? My computer isn't quite good enough for XCOM 2 yet. That's I'm going to be upgrading it as part of my birthday present thing in the next month. Okay, right on. Well, that should be good to check out. I mean, I've I've seen some things from it, and I think it looks much better. They added a bunch of quality of life changes from the first XCOM game. They've made it more easily moddable, and I think it's going to be a more solid game all around. Nice, I like it. Cool. So uh, we've got quite a bit to cover this episode, so why don't we go hopping over to White Wolf News. All right, cool. So a lot has gone on in the past two weeks, uh, quite a bit to discuss, especially concerning the uh, new White Wolf uh, subsidiary of Paradox Interactive. So uh, Martin Erickson, the uh, lead storyteller over at uh, White Wolf, uh, did an interview with uh, Imogen.com, and the interview was not very well received. It actually came out just uh, two days after we recorded the last episode, and uh yeah, we've we've taken some time, uh, digested the facts, and uh, you know we kind of want to jump into this and uh, analyze it a little bit, and and try to avoid some of the negativity uh, that we saw a lot of uh, in the initial response to this on like social media and the like. Uh, we'll include a link to the interview in the show notes so you can check it out yourself. And it's interesting. This uh, interview actually did restate quite a bit of information uh, that we found at uh, at Tenebra and Noctis uh, in the recorded presentations. So a lot of it's not new. It's just uh, presented in a rather uh, shocking manner, uh, specifically with uh, how it was written and the the, the text itself. Now, just to kind of start things off looking at this, there was an interesting quote. Uh, Again, this is mentioned at uh, Tenebra and Noctis, but I kind of want to uh, take another look at it and reiterate uh, some things about it. Martin stated that, to paraphrase, the launch plans of White Wolf will always be secret until they're not. Uh, so therefore, kind of uh, keeping things a mystery uh, and trying to have some surprise with their releases, uh, that's one of the things they brought up at uh, the convention itself. And I can see where they're coming from with this, but I would uh, advise them to be careful, because uh, this sort of strategy has extensively backfired for a Games Workshop in the past. 
uh, there really has to be some dialogue with the community, both to, uh, you know, explain yourself and uh, get them hyped up for releases and just to prevent any confusion. Because if they're, if people are just blindsided by what you're doing, uh, there's usually going to be some confusion and um, distaste. Uh, so that's, that's something just kind of be careful of. And, uh, you know, again, to make sure you communicate uh, what your intentions are. Well, we've seen some of that confusion in the past week with the announcement of the LARP. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So, for example, uh, yeah, we can talk about that LARP a little bit. There is the end-of-line LARP, uh, which we saw the uh, kind of promotional material for uh, come out this week. This is a, a live-action role-playing experience, uh, a night of it, uh, set on a ship uh, in the Baltic Sea. And uh, there's supposed to be something like 60 players. Uh, the problem is that the the promo material we saw has this uh, you know very edgy vibe to it, but we're kind of confused about what the design intents are. It seems as though they're trying to test out some new mechanics and materials for uh, future LARP events done by White Wolf. But due to the uh, kind of mixture of uh, front-facing player material and um, discussion of, of what the company's intents are, it's a little tough to reason out exactly what they're trying to do. Uh, am, I, am I wording that correctly, uh, Matt? Well, yeah, I mean, what I understand is basically that the press release is divided into two sections. One section is in character, and then the end of it is out of character, kind of describing their purpose and intent for the LARP. And the in-character texts describe it as a very extreme, very debaucherous kind of thing where you do whatever you want and hold nothing back. Whereas the text at the end says that it's going to be very respectful, require consent, and go over all of these trying to figure out new ways to simulate and represent sex and drug use in a LARP. And it just comes across as very conflicted in trying to figure out exactly what they want to do. Yeah, precisely. So, I mean, it seems as though, I mean, it, it's almost like this this game is specifically going to be encouraging, you know, testing out these new mechanics for, uh, for sex and drug use, which uh, traditionally are not a big thing in, in Vampire. You know, if you look at older editions of uh, Vampire the Masquerade, um, it was actually very difficult for uh, vampires to have intercourse, which they've since kind of started to change that uh, with the with the V20 releases uh, due mm. to the uh, the popularity of it uh, amongst amongst players. Uh, and in addition to that, um, I mean, drug use isn't used too much by by kindred themselves. Now, uh, of course, about I think there's supposed to be 60 players in this thing, and about 40 of them are going to be mortal characters. So uh, it could be that uh, these mechanics are primarily focused on them uh, and and that uh, sort of thing. But we don't really know, and uh, it's just a little shocking because that's that's not what I think most people were expecting out of out of White Wolf uh, for its first major event. I think that's a fair assessment. Um, it, I think the hardest thing is that, as you say, is the the there's no, there's no way to see the tone tonally the difference between the as you say the character facing information and the the player facing information and it just seems very disconnected and and strange. Um, I mean, looking at it and, and reading it, 
uh, again, I mean, to me, on a first read, it basically about about certain things you could possibly witness there. I mean, I think, I think, I think I dislike the word possible because there possibly is and possibly isn't, and of course. You, there are very definites when you role play because there are definites in what your boundary is as a player and what your and what your other players' boundaries are, because these are things that not be transgressed. Everyone can have a good time. Using possible makes it kind of like, oh well, you you'll see this, and whether you like, you may see this or you may not. So you may not see it, and it's all it it, it adds fuzziness to it, and I'm not too sure. It, I, I mean the way. The way that- the feeling that I got from it, Chris, isn't that you may see this. It's like, this might happen, but we really, really hope it does. Yeah. Like, we want this to happen. And... I mean, if they're testing systems for it, yeah, they're they're kind of encouraging it overall. It's, it's interesting like... because when you look at uh, Mind's Eye Theater LARPs, they actually have pretty conservative limitations because, you know, they're... they're um, they're releasing these as, you know, publications and uh, a lot of these events are, you know fairly public themselves so they have to be careful uh as writers that they don't encourage certain things like uh we look at mindset theater there's a rule about no touching um and pretty specific rules about you know calling it into scenes and that sort of thing so when you when you have a larp like this which is far more uh liberal we'll say uh it's it's just a bit different than uh what we've seen before with with uh live action products from older white wolf releases and I mean, I think it's cool that uh, they're trying to do something new and uh, push the boundaries a little bit. However, the entire point of this of this conversation right now is that it's really just about communication. And what I think would be great is if uh, when when White Wolf uh, and and Martin specifically in the future are discussing these new um, design decisions, that you know he talks about his de- design philosophy a little bit uh, and kind of encourages discussion and explains like what they're specifically trying to do. Yeah, I, it's hmm, it's it's hard because I mean I, there's elements I I get of so I'm no larper okay let's be honest I'm no larper but I understand mm-hmm. what Nordic larp goes out to achieve and I think one of the coolest larp events I've seen and gone wow I actually would have loved to participate in is um it took place a few years back you can see videos online of it is System Denmark or System Denmark but the whole point of that was it was a larp that had lots of workshops beforehand about how they were setting up this dystopian society, how they were setting up and building the infrastructure that they would be living within and and, and so forth. Because it was meant to model kind of like, like an underhive of society. And at the end of the event, and having to, you know, people having to somehow live with some weird economy that they work out in the, in the thing and dealing with, you know, whatever else they bring to it. So it kind of looks a bit like Burning Man in that sense as well, is that the players were then then had to, at the end, watched an actual documentary, a hard-hitting documentary, on what it's like to be homeless in modern Denmark. So the game was a way of, of making accessible a very important issue. So... I think the thing so the thing there is I, I get that because if you want to get into the nitty gritty of what it's like to be that way, you do have to go in full bore and 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 kind of push the limits of what is accepted, 
within the limitations of that game. Whereas, because it's trying to teach you something. Whereas the problem with this, with the with this first lap, with the Nordic thing, is I don't know if it's every, if everyone's meant to be have, trying to have fun. Then I think you have to set very rigidly what the extremities of that is. So that's why I feel like oh, it's possible you'll you'll see. It's like no, you will you will. It should be you are you are definitely going to see more than likely actions such as these because it's like if you go to say a fetish event you will definitely see stuff you know more than likely so going in with the kind of like fuzzy with kind of like a fuzzy description of what the event is no just say th this is where the the line is and it's quite you know it's quite far along and accept it otherwise don't bother coming and that that you know, you've got to set i think the boundaries have to be a lot harder defined yeah, especially when people want to have fun, if they know what the hard limitations are, and also know that there are very hard, um, hard uh, ways of um, of displaying that you as a player do not want to consent to certain actions. It just to me when I read this, it comes off a bit too fuzzy. Uh, indeed, and there might be some more uh, information on site for players. And we also have to remember that this is uh, really designed for that Nordic LARP community, so they may themselves have different expectations from this uh, than we uh, American and, and Western European uh, tabletop role players. So I think we discussed this uh, pretty thoroughly and pretty well. Uh, and yeah, uh, we'll just kind of have to see how it goes and uh, what kind of responses and, uh, and feedback uh, we see from people that actually attend the event. So moving on with the interview, there was a, uh, a very interesting quote regarding the Chronicles of Darkness. And this is one of the things that really grounds in people's gears simply because you know, the wording is, is, is not the best. So I'll actually just directly quote it here uh, and uh, present it to people. So, uh, quote, with the second editions of Chronicles of Darkness has really found a separate identity from World of Darkness and will continue to become even more of its own thing. We still own it, but it's Onyx Path's baby. Uh, I love Chronicles of Darkness and find that it is a much more playable game with a more vague and unsettling aesthetic than World of Darkness ever had. Too bad it never sold for shit and that older players hated it. It lacked the epic scope and the punk passion of the classic World of Darkness. Had it done even remotely as well as the classic World of Darkness, things would be very different. End quote. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, I mean, what, what Matt? What did you say before? This is the most uh, backwards uh, compliment ever, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, I, much. I, I mean, I hope it just means that uh, they're going to let Onyx Path pretty much do whatever they want with the Chronicles of Darkness. Because, I mean, they've been hitting it out of the park with the second edition material thus far. Um, and if the the new White Wolf kind of just leaves it alone and leaves Onyx Path alone with it, uh, I think we're all pretty cool with that uh, overall. I think what they said is that Onyx Path can do whatever they want with the Chronicles of Darkness books and the 20th anniversary books. Right. And as long as that remains the same... I'm okay with it. I don't want them to go into Chronicles of Darkness and say, no, no, you have to do this now because this is the new branding. That would be bad. Yeah. The the selling for shit thing, I think, was came off, again, I think this is a case of where there's a problem with 
if you're a person that's been talking to a particular part of the community, of gaming community, LARP community, whatever, for so long, and now suddenly you are you are the face of White Wolf, you are the face of World of Darkness, you are the face... You are, and also, while Chronicles of Darkness is Onyx Pass baby, apparently, you are still, as the IP right owners, the face of those games as well. I don't care what you think on that, you're still the face of it. It'd be like Games Workshop going, well, you know, 40k is our main thing, and it's a shame Age of Sigmar is selling for shit, but, you know, and it pissed off the older players, okay? Hmm. No, but it's still your IP, and you should still treat it. That's probably not the best example. Because it's all true. (laughs) 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 Yeah. Um, The thing with the the soul for shit, and I feel like, again, it, it, it just added... You know, fuel to the fire, to the age-old fire of which did which did better. And I mean, I think Justin Achille is somewhere actually. You know, while he he was never never allowed to disclose sales numbers, said something along the lines that Vampire the Requiem actually sold out of its first printing within a certain like within the first year or something like yeah. that. And actually, they had to do a second printing, and that was that hadn't happened. And also, if you considered that that level of sales, then in uh, an environment where publishing in general was going tits up, and this trend, this uh, movement to to digital sales as well was beginning, and dealing with piracy because obviously we're into this wonderful new age where people quite easily scan books and pirate them out. You know, saying how bad Chronicles of Darkness sold is it sold for shit. It, it just it it lacks so much. Content when really what you what you wanted to say was it didn't have cultural traction that Vampire the Masquerade had, which is a right. fair thing to say because Vampire Masquerade had a fucking wrestler called Gangrel. It had <laughs> a TV series which everyone says is actually a TV series that better represents Vampire the Requiem. But anyway, um, and you know you've had multiple computer games, you've had a card game, all those things. So, and I will never argue against that point. I will say, you know, it did have a greater cultural traction. But at the same time, talking in this way about the context is rather dismissive because we actually have no real feeling. I don't think, unless Onyx Path or, or whoever put out actually proper sales numbers or actually did a proper kind of like um, census of, of LARP communities going on, we don't really have a feel for what Vampire the Requiem or New World of Darkness or Chronicles of Darkness is doing in the world because there's a there's in the UK um, there's an Isles of Darkness community which it, which used to run its own World of Darkness and Old World of Darkness and New World of Darkness LARP events and they've gone completely to New World of Darkness and I think that's because they have complete control of the narrative for their localities because there is no meta plot. So again showing kind of what the strength is that you know Martin talks about of uh, Chronicles of Darkness. So yeah, that's my thoughts on it. I think you know tact is a wonderful thing. To expand on that Chris, um what what you have to remember is that during um when the first World of Darkness was going on that was when that was during the first RPG boom. That was when you had things like the Dragonlance novels and the Forgotten Realms novels, and it was expected that 
any role-playing game would have a marketing engine built around it. And Hmm. you could sell things like the 13 clan novels and the giant metaplot things, and you can have all of these books and expect people to buy them because they want to see how the setting unfolds and how the world builds, and you can have all of these splat books for each and every single clan. You can have all these other things because that was the culture at the time. Mm. But the New World of Darkness launched during the D20 bomb. Like, that's when role-playing games almost died, and they still succeeded. Yeah, definitely. It's actually very interesting to look at uh, Shadowrun and the World of Darkness games together because they have a similar, you know, meta plot organization to each other. If you look at uh, in, in 2005, just a year after New World of Darkness launched, uh, Shadowrun took a real fall. The uh, fourth edition did not sell well, and uh, it suffered greatly, and FanPro, uh, within two years, actually lost their license. Uh, they, it just wasn't profitable for them. And it, it since rebounded with uh, Catalyst Game Labs, but you can see that, you know, if they just released Vampire 4th Edition in 2004, uh, it might have been really the death of uh, White Wolf. Exactly, yeah. There is no, I mean, hindsight is a wonderful thing. And given given how people have their, also their favorite editions of, of, of Vampire the Masquerade, let alone the other ones in the classic World of Darkness, you know, there really is no guarantee on on whether that new edition, because you get this with other other games, you bring out a new edition, and people are like, well, why do I need to rebuy the whole game again, like like that? If you look at New World of Darkness, it's gone on for how many years did it take until Vampire the Requiem got a second edition? Over ten years until mm-hmm. it got a second edition. I think that says a lot about new about Chronicles of Darkness, about itself, a, a stability of a game line as well as stability being divorced from the need to do a supplement treadmill. Because there's something else we get into when you look at how many books were released for previous games, is they had to bring out new games, because otherwise distributors would not keep selling their stuff. There had to be something new to push to the game stores, to push to the bookstores. So you had to constantly have some new product for them to keep wanting to stock and distribute for you. Hmm. Well, yeah. and another thing is I don't think that White Wolf could have done a fourth edition because up until that point, all of the third edition books were basically saying, yeah, the apocalypse is happening happening yeah. next Tuesday. Mark your calendars. You know, yeah. the end times are here. Everything is going bad. And they couldn't just go, actually, we were wrong. It's happening in a couple of years. Here's a bunch of new stuff that has to happen first. Yeah, yeah, I don't think people have bought into that. It would have it would have looked like you know, dodging. It would have looked it would have looked too much like not. Um, it, it would have looked like Games Workshop. Did, I'll use Games Workshop again because they have so many good examples of this. Um, uh, Mike, do you remember the Thirteenth Black Crusade campaign book that came out during I think around about third or fourth edition? Oh yeah, oh yeah, I remember that one. And also the uh, Storm of Chaos did the same thing for Warhammer yeah. Fantasy. And those all got rolled back, remember? All the events of Storm Chaos got rolled back. The events of... And most of the events in the other one got rolled back because, you know, Games Workshop likes perpetuating this five minutes to midnight kind of thing. So those events got rolled back and then you either have 
40k still a strong property, thus they keep it there. They keep going, they keep selling you stuff, and now they finally bring out new factions that people have been waiting decades for, like the Skitari or or the Gene Stealer Cult and things like that, and make bigger models. Or you do a you do a end times on Warhammer and bring out Age of Sigma and have a property now which is not synchronous with your with your computer game properties like Mordheim. Well, Mordheim's never been synchronous, let's be honest. It's a, that's actually a historical Warhammer setting. Mm-hmm. But, um, but with the uh, Warhammer Online, uh, so Total War Warhammer, that's, that's Warhammer Fantasy Battles. That's not Age of Sigma. So, you know, I don't get... I think it's really weird because most other companies aim for a synchronicity between all their different, different uh, implementations of their IP. Like, wasn't part of the thing of the uh, age of, like, the Storm of Chaos or whatever was that they planned, like, the plot around what the actual player battles did. Oh, yeah, they also did that. And they wanted to, like, lump in orcs with chaos, and all the orc players like, uh, no? And so they kept fighting chaos, and chaos lost. And they're like, oh, no, actually, chaos won, because the orcs actually did this. Yeah. It was all really weird, but it's just, yeah. I think there's a when you've got a, a meta plot that's leading you to this big event, this end of the world or end of the universe event. At some point, you've got to you've either got got to go in with it hardcore and just do it, or it just looks like you haven't got the guts to really to really commit to your material. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, I got you. I got you. And one of the interesting things uh, about what New White Wolf is doing is that they've kind of indicated that uh, the new material is probably going to be happening essentially during the apocalypse, during Gehenna. You know, mm. maybe it hasn't fully ramped up, but uh, things are, are finally really moving in that regard, uh, which is going to be interesting to see. I, I think it'll be uh, kind of a, a neat take on the uh, older World of Darkness properties. I have to admit, I like the idea that it's going to be a game that takes place that is, the metaplot is during the apocalypse. Like, the apocalypse is not just uh, a one-day event, and then it, and then the world ends, and everything becomes black, and everyone gets taken up to heaven or wherever the hell goes on. It's actually an extended, protracted kind of crumbling of of the world, which still leaves a lot of interesting gaps in in the narrative to play, and and still maybe things to win, things to play for, like. Well, the world's ending, but now is it a case of how many souls can you save? What can you retain from this world? What um, is there some way to escape it? So I like that. Um, though the other thing which I find amusing, this goes back to Edition Wars, is that we have no guarantee that this new One World of Darkness is going to even be accepted by the classic player base, the classic World of Darkness player base, because in the process of getting there, we're going to have a new game system, somehow obviously derived from the storyteller system, and along the way, there could be some major retcons that go on along the way. There's going to be met retcons, there's going to be rebalancings, um, they're probably going to maybe kill off some clans or create new ones... Well, um, we we don't we don't exactly know about that. Although it would be good to fix uh, some of the more problematic ones, uh, right. but again, 
it's they're kind of hedging their bets at least in that uh, Onyx Path will for the foreseeable future still release the 20th anniversary stuff so no matter what we still have as tabletop role players the uh, existing uh, systems and settings that we've come to love so you know we're, we're at least for the foreseeable future dodging a bullet in that regard right there was one other part from the interview though is that he said that gothic punk is dead which mm. I think is kind of incongruous with the rest of his statements mm. that he wants to re he wants to recapture the gothic punk feeling, but he himself admits that it's dead. Yeah, I find that it's such a weird conflict of of ideas there. Um, because I mean, let's be honest. Well, you know, the UK has an interesting kind of goth alternative scene. Germany has a really good you know goth alternative scene. Uh, 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 an industrial scene. Uh, I'm sure many other parts of Europe, especially Northern Europe, have that as well. Whether it be, you know, black, me- you know, black metal as well, and all those things. But let's be freaking honest. Like the, again, this is where you have to be careful that what you see locally as a trend or a success is not the same as a success globally. Or even within uh, within your own country, um, because you know if it was, we it's not it's not it's not you know the good old uh, you know mid to late 80s and you know we've got Susie and the Banshee and other similar bands and so forth and that alternate kind of uh, music happily in uh, on on the music channels or or, or on the ra- I say on the radio but that's a bit dated isn't it um, <laughs> but you know what I mean like that or for example even if we if we go to like around about 2000 around about 2000 uh, you know late 1998 onwards it's not like the the age of new metal when you know Slipknot and Korn and and so forth were all like the alternate alternative music bands which also had a lot of uh, mainstream pull we're not there. We're not in any of those anymore. We're actually in a far more fragmented and diverse uh, society with a very monoculture uh, society on top of it, which is also really fragmented in its own right. So I don't think you can really capture it. I think it's dead, and I don't think you can get it back. The people who were the gothic punk wave of the late 80s, early 90s are all... 42 to 50 now they've got kids of their own like they aren't going to be they aren't going to you know go put back on their black leather and spikes and put up their hair in a mohawk again just because the world of darkness is back the other thing and i think this will be something that i'm sure i'll bring up with um with david when because he's when he gets his internet finally taught out we do episode one of network zero because he is now a lecturer at whichever is it lancaster university I think so, but obviously his his specialism is in Gothic literature, and so he also helps out with running, uh, taking part in events for the Manchester Gothic uh, Festival, which covers music, uh, you know, fashion, and literature and movies and and media, and I think it's important to note, and this is one of the things that also bugs me when people bang on about gothic punkness in, in classic world of darkness and, and, and then say, oh well, in 
it, you know, all, all Vampire the Requiem is just people walking around like they're out of some Gap advert or something like that. I can't remember. that, Or they choose whatever descriptions for some mainstream fashion. I think there's a very, to me, there is a distinct difference to say that Chronicles of Darkness is gothic in stories it tells. It may not be gothic in the way it looks, necessarily, but that's because it's tr- it's trying to cleave closer to our reality. And the world as it stands now, in many aspects, is quite gothic because there, there's such a fight for old things that are crumbling away, and that, and there's also that feeling of dystopian. It's more it's more about the the ennui as we go through the progressive march of decades. And the, look, we were expecting the year 2000 to change everything, but it didn't. Instead, the world seems shitter for it, not better. That I think is the gothic attitude, you know, the gothic uh, mood to to grab onto. I think there is a punk attitude to grab onto, but it is not the punks of the of the of the eighties, you know, of back then. Those are gone, you know, in a, as a mainstream as a as a large subcultural group. Right. There aren't punks like the counterculture of today are yeah. like the Occupy Wall Street guys or things like that. Like it's not the we're going to dress to stand out and express our displeasure with the way things are looking now. Well, no, they don't have to dress like that because if no. they want to express their displeasure, they can do it in a in a digital environment where they can represent themselves however the hell they like more easily than they ever had to. By day, they look like a white-collar worker. By night, they're a member of Anonymous. Right. Yeah. All right, guys, cool. <laughs> so I think that's a good discussion of that right there. And uh, we're 40 minutes into the episode, and we're only through like a half page of <laughs> show notes here. So let's keep moving here. Here's, here's another one. Matt, Matt, this is for you, okay? Uh, the question was, will the werewolves remain crypto-fascist eco-terrorists? To which the response was, more than they ever have been. Yeah, no, <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> Like, if um. the entire point of this game is that it took place after the apocalypse, bombing whaling boats isn't going to close the hole in the ozone. The interesting thing about Werewolf the Apocalypse is that, you know, the first edition was all about... The, it was like this kind of revenge fantasy against uh, pollution and, and things going wrong in society. And then uh-huh. second edition and, and revised for Werewolf were all about kind of just explaining that, hey you can't really solve these issues by punching them. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, it's it's fun to do, but it doesn't actually solve the problem. And uh, it's kind of about how these, these guru uh, need to find other ways and have to adapt to uh, this new world and uh, to be able to uh, protect it and save it at all. I think that theme of adaption is possibly more relevant now than ever, given oh, yeah. the pace at which technology and society is changing. I think it's... And that was kind of the thing, is that the World of the Apocalypse and Revised Edition has this very real duality between the Glasswalkers and the Red Talons. The, the Red Talons are real traditionists trying to bring back the Impergium, and even though they know it won't work, they're a dying breed, and they're doing whatever they have to because they want to go out screaming. They want to leave their mark on the world. Whereas the Glasswalkers are adapting to the society and kind of blending in, but they're also kind of losing their identity in the process. And even though 
they can use the tools to become more effective warriors, they're becoming sli- they're becoming less guru. And that there has to be some kind of balance between the two. But like and that's the thing is that the glasswalkers are very good at working within the system to bring about change. But that's but sometimes you do have sometimes there is a time when you do have to go punch something to make a difference. You do have to go rip something apart. Yep, you're definitely right, Matt, and I like it. So it's just that was that was unfortunate wording, uh, to say the least. And uh, well, we'll see what happens. We'll see. We'll see if uh, we get more details on the guru in the future. So moving on, um, we have something that uh, I'm I'm absolutely going to come on come in on Martin's side on, uh, and that is dealing with uh, and integrating real world events into the setting. Um, he specifically brings up that uh, White Wolf had previously, you know, released a source book for Wraith the Oblivion discussing the Holocaust. Uh, it was uh, Shoah uh, for the Wraith line. And he also uh, brings up his dissatisfaction with White Wolf's lack of, of discussion about the uh, September 11th attacks. Now, White Wolf uh, had released a source book called New York by Night and actually sent it to the printer on September 14th. So it had already been written and was going to the printer just three days after uh, the attacks occurred. And I think it's perfectly fine that White Wolf decided to not pull the book and uh, try to explore these these fresh and rather painful issues in, uh, in a fantasy context only you know days after they, they uh, had occurred. But I mean, you've got some people on social media looking at this this interview that Martin did, and they don't think that we should explore this at all now, 15 years later. And that's, I have to say, definitely a mistake. You know, this is an historic event, uh, which happened years ago, and it would be beneficial to explore and and discuss this, even in this, this fantasy context of, uh, say, Vampire the Masquerade, because mortal events uh and and this has to be an immortal a mortal event that happened uh, you can't say that vampires did or something like that and i highly doubt that uh martin would take that approach I, i'm sure he wouldn't uh but this this was uh specifically an event that really changed things in the united states for the worse with uh increased security monitoring and uh and likewise other issues but also affected many other countries around the world you know directly uh countries like afghanistan and iraq but also uh many of the european allies of the united states you know uh the united kingdom got dragged into two wars uh because of these attacks and uh we've also seen a lot of increased attacks and damage being done to countries such as as france and united kingdom and spain uh so it's definitely something that should be discussed and analyzed Maybe not a focus, but uh, it's definitely a change that should be explored. Well, I think it's like I was saying is that I don't, I'm not sure if it needs to be a book. And I think the people who are talk, who were talking about it online, is that they don't want him dealing with it because they're afraid it's going to be a you know a vampires caused 9/11 thing. Mm-hmm. As far yeah, as exactly. needing to make a book to deal with it, I'm not sure if that's specifically necessary. Because when you think about it, the old World of Darkness was published before 9-11. The new World of Darkness came out after 9-11. So it was already made in a 9-11 world. And like Chris Mm -hmm. said, 
the New World of Darkness cleaves a lot closer to the modern world, so you don't really need a book to go over, you know, oh, well, these are changes that happened out of 9-11. Like, there's tighter security and there's all the other things because we know that. We live in that world. We deal with those things. Tonally, we already incorporate it into the stories that we tell each other. Right. Because we know those stories and we know that, you know, these are things that vampires are going to deal with. I think a book like that would more come off as a historical text saying, you know, oh, well, here's all the things that changed because of 9-11. Like, not specifically, these are the things that changed in the world of darkness because of 9-11. And the difference between Shoah is that Shoah was written for people today as as kind of, you know, this is what happened 50, 60 years ago. And, like, and as as a period piece, like, this is how you adventure... Well, that's adventure. This is how you tell stories during the Holocaust. And there really is, like, 9 11 is such a singular event that I'm not really sure that you could do a book like This is How You Tell Stories in the Aftermath of 9 11. I think you might be able to do This is How You Tell Stories, like, in the Middle East during the War on Terror. Like, you could yeah. maybe do a book like that as, like, a setting as a setting, but I don't think the post-9-11 world really needs exploration because we are in the post-9-11 world. The world of, the new world of darkness, Chronicles of Darkness, is a post-9-11 world. It just doesn't specifically say 9-11 happened and this is what happened because of it. Yep. Yeah, I could definitely see what you're saying, Matt, and I would agree with that. Uh, I would, however, not discourage, um, you know, talking about particular, let's say, NPCs or something that may have been directly affected by this, uh, especially if it can bring some uh, discussion or closure to uh, particular aspects of of these events. Yeah, I don't really have much more to add on that. No, nope. Uh, <laughs> okay, I think that really is uh, enough uh, to discuss with that interview. Uh, again, it really just a lot of it came down to uh, wording and and communication. So. He did write yeah. a clarification, which is, I think, fair to point out because Indeed. there was some backlash. Um, which, again, is, I think, because it comes down to really just trying to point out they went with the, for One World of Darkness, they went with the IP that was easier, which was more well, which had the traction, industry traction to use. Um, which, again, no one's ever going to argue that. I think it's maybe. I think it's maybe a bit early or a bit it's a bit upfront to immediately write off wanting to do any digital products based on Chronicles of Darkness uh, because again I think there are things there that could be leveraged and I'm certain that there are maybe things that work a lot better like if you look at the popularity of say Changing the Lost or you look at even Demon of the, the Demon of the Descent because it has no real uh, analog in classic World of Darkness. So um, you know, I, it, it's a bit. It's, it, it would be like it's just too much writing it off when, like, you know, most when you look at like comic book industry, they're just like they'll use anything they've got. They'll use the most the most Z list Z list set of characters and they make a bloody film out of it. It's called Guardians of the Galaxy, right? So, yep. you know, it's 
you've got all this IP, leverage it where, where you can. There's clearly, uh, I mean, you just got to do it in the right way that doesn't lead to brand confusion. But I think there's plenty of brand confusion because you've got World of Darkness and then you've got everything that's hap- that's come out in TV and media which are, well, to put nicely, inspired by World of Darkness. Yeah, indeed, indeed. And I'm sure if uh, you know the World of Darkness brand itself becomes a runaway success, they'll definitely consider uh, releasing some mm. additional stuff from Chronicles of Darkness. But uh, we'll just have to see what happens, and it's all speculation at the moment. So uh, moving on from there, just to uh, speed up the episode a little bit, we have news about the uh, first new World of Darkness license, <laughs> which is with a company called uh, Foxium, uh, who makes video slot machines for online gambling. So I did a little research into this, and um, basically it's it's the video slot machines play little clip reels and uh, show you some cool stuff to keep you entertained as you pull the lever or click the lever because it's, it's all online. So uh, there actually is one of these for Dungeons & Dragons, so the precedent is already there. And, well, I mean... I'm not into gambling and don't don't really like uh, gambling and, and that sort of thing. But I don't want to denigrate anyone that will be entertained by this. So, yeah. Whatever. It's just leveraging IP. You know, it's mostly the quickest thing you can implement. So, yeah, certainly, certainly. My I only mean, real complaint about it is that it seems a little tone deaf somewhat to talk about, you know, the gothic punk thing and <laughs> yeah. to resurrect that. Yeah. And here's a video slot machine. Yes. In- indeed, indeed. Uh, gambling is a uh, tool of the worm, is it not, Matt? Oh, God, yes, it is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, well, it's, it's amusing. But uh, anyway, uh, another piece of news that came out from White Wolf was that they are looking to hire an editor. <laughs> uh, so if you want to move to Sweden... Go uh, put your resume in or your curriculum vitae and, yeah, let's uh, see if you can get over there and work for Paradox Entertainment and the new White Wolf. And White Wolf also had some constructive talks with the uh, uh, Vikan, the Vampire Elder Kindred Network for Vampire the Eternal Struggle, talking about trying to get the card game re-released. So I'm pretty excited about that and it uh, seems like things are uh, finally moving ahead in that regard. Joining us as well on the internet, on the interwebs for more World of Darkness podcasting is a new show, which is called Shadow Sworn Radio Hour. Uh, I gave their uh, first full episode a listen and seemed like pretty cool dudes. One of them is actually going to be running uh, I-6 Ravenloft uh, with AD&D 2nd Edition, which I just did a couple months back. Had a great time, so definitely, uh, definitely wish them luck with that. And uh, it's a great episode that they released talking about... Dirty Secrets of the Black Hand uh, for Vampire the Masquerade. It's good listening to them talk about it because, again, they're under no... They're, they're very clearly under no uh, pretensions of where Classic World of Darkness is and where they are as people now. They're not They're not looking at things too rose-tinted, which is nice. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, we'll include a link in the show notes uh, so you can go check it out. And uh, I didn't see any new books on uh, fully released on uh, onyxpath.com so we'll see what what they come out with uh, next time for next episode we have no further news other than that I mailed out the uh, the prizes for the <laughs> Darker Days Radio Contest finally oh, uh, you guys will be getting those soon 
uh, had, <laughs> I went to the post office this past week and they're like, oh, our credit card machine isn't working. Can you pay in cash? And I said, no, what is this, the dark ages? <laughs> so I uh, finally got them shipped out and uh, those would be arriving soon. And with that, uh, I think it's time to move over to our One World of Darkness segment. Classic World of Darkness. All right, guys. So we're going to talk about a Vampire the Masquerade book this episode. And it's actually one that I, if you go on DriveThruRPG, you can find my old review of, where I gave it two stars. Now... Uh, a lot of people have actually told me that they really like this book. Uh, even Mage the Awakening developer and friend of the show, Dave Brookshaw, says it's pretty great. So I decided to reread this source book, Dark Colony. And, uh, well, I kind of have to retract my earlier criticism. It's actually a really good book. Uh, I guess I just didn't understand it when I was a punk kid in high school. <laughs> so, yeah, Dark Colony uh, was actually published in 1993. Uh, so it's an early Vampire Second Edition supplement. It was written by Beth Fishy and John Cooper. Beth actually went on to write a couple other books for Mage the uh, Ascension and Werewolf the Apocalypse as well. So she kind of stuck around, but I didn't find any uh, proceeding work from John Cooper. Uh, the book is divided into two parts. It has a discussion of kindred politics in the uh, North American uh, and United States region of New England. And there's also an adventure in the second half called Identity Crisis. I kind of suspect that Beth wrote the source material uh, section of the book while John wrote the adventure because it's populated by like 90% dudes. So that's just kind of my, my gut feeling right there. Uh, Dark Colony is a pretty cool book. It actually starts off with uh, some really good assumptions. Uh, Southern New England has a bunch of small, densely packed cities. So the kindred all over the region interact with each other. Um, you know, because it only takes you 20, 30 minutes to get to another city, it's very easy uh, to have multiple princes or to have one singular prince who just controls a lot of territory. Uh, he controls multiple cities. And they, in fact, do include that. Uh, there's a prince that claims domain over both Hartford and New Haven, Connecticut, which are uh, two major cities there. And uh, there's also a prince of Boston who has these kind of like vassalized princedoms to help manage his territory in eastern Massachusetts. So I think that's a pretty cool idea that you could uh, definitely uh, use in, in other settings and other games. Mm, I, I mean, that, that even that kind of approach, uh, just going back, I mean, that, that way of thinking works very good for setting games like in the UK because you've got cities that, are very, that sit so close together and, but are next to a major city that that Vasseldom really um, way of setting things up really works quite well. Yeah, it's definitely a good idea for Europe because uh, simply the way that, that if you look at the United States, uh, it's very interesting how technology progressed. And because of that, cities got farther and farther apart. So when you look at the Midwestern United States, the uh, kind of general assumption of just having one prince in one city and there's just kind of this void of darkness and lupines and forests all around it uh, kind of works out there. It works out on the West Coast. But if you look at... Uh, the eastern seaboard there's a lot of densely packed small cities uh and that general assumption of just one prince per city doesn't uh doesn't exactly make sense so that's why i think this book is really strong in that regard that it kind of introduces this idea and you know the, the authors they put some thought into it so that's very good how does um the presentation of of uh, new england uh in this book compare to say that in um in boston unveiled uh for mage the awakening 
um, I just want to, uh, you know, just the, the the general feel of the setting they're trying to present, like how how well they get across the historical facts and and actually what living in New England is like. Not as well as Boston Unveiled. So okay. Boston Unveiled has this real air of mystery to it, whereas this book has that uh, specifically in the adventure portion. Okay, but. It mostly just kind of codifies and explains the uh, various factions of, of vampires okay. and it does so in, in pretty good detail. Uh, so it doesn't really get that across too much. But as as I was playing, I'm bringing up uh, kind of later on in this discussion. There's actually uh, uh, an appendix to Giovanni Chronicles number four uh, where it, it uh, discusses, uh, it has an appendix uh which is Boston by night, basically. And it explores a lot of like historical locations and uh, ongoing events in more detail for that particular city. Uh, it's a pretty cool resource. Hmm. Yeah, so there's definitely uh, enough information in Vampire the Masquerade as published to kind of kind of get those feels and uh, information across. So, yeah, uh, the political structure of Dark Colony is actually really cool, and uh, I think it's great for vampire games. It's something a little bit different and just as complex as uh, the old Chicago by Night source book. And it's really something we don't get again until Vampire the Requiem, uh, with all of its various uh, faction infighting and uh, just variety in the setting itself. So Dark Colony gives you a setting for uh, New England in the 1990s, uh, after it's been invaded by kindred from Britain nearly 100 years ago. So there is already like an existing Camarilla structure of Princetons, which was broken by this invasion and never fully recovered. And the existing Sabbat threat has mostly been displaced and pushed back up into uh, kind of the north towards Canada, which in the Vampire the Masquerade setting, uh, Canada is pretty thoroughly uh, Sabbat territory, especially uh, the city of Montreal. Uh, So now there's this cabal of three British elders known as the Triad that has divided up control of much New England. And uh, this conflict uh, you find in New England exists on multiple levels. There's a lot of different ways to approach it because you obviously have American kindred that are fighting against, at least in kind of a shadow war format, uh, the British. Uh, you've got the Triad, those three vampire elders, uh, going up against the remnants of the Camarilla and uh, possibly Anarchs. Uh, you have the Triad going against the Sabbat. You have the Triad elders, the three of them, fighting amongst themselves, of course. Uh, you've also got the Tremere uh, uh, coming into conflict with local witch cults, which is uh, kind of interesting and not something you typically see in uh, uh, vampire source books and then also uh, of course kindred versus lupines wow that's really really cool that is a lot to take in yeah definitely especially because most of the by night city books really just kind of presents camarilla with its own internal politics and then them finding a, a hot war against the sabbat this has a lot more going on which is pretty interesting you know there's different layers to the onion So the Triad itself is nominally uh, a Camarilla faction led by these three British kindred in New England. Uh, But the the Triad actually exists mostly behind the scenes, uh, with exception of kind of this hot war going on uh, between them and the Sabbat up in Vermont and up in the uh, kind of more northern areas. Uh, The Triad themselves uh, invaded New England at the behest of Selina, who was uh, Pendragon's sire. Uh, who influenced her child into invading New England in the hopes of creating a realm where kindred could rule over the kind, uh, which really kind of does sound like the Sabbat uh, and their overall plans, which is you know, kind of neat. Uh, Pendragon is himself probably the most overt of the triad. Uh, he and his Bruja 
uh, army. I'll say that kind of in kind of in quotation marks. Uh, this is one an early source book, so they hadn't really codified how how uh, kindred battle it out, uh, you know, between the Camarilla and the Sabbat yet. Um, you kind of get that later in other source books like uh, Midnight Siege. So they're fighting with Sabat and the Lupines up in northern New England. And this hot war kind of gives you a backdrop if you want to have a chronicle which is more combat-oriented, uh, being set in New England. There's also this other elder known as uh, Biltmore. Uh, he's kind of more subtle, despite his nominal alignment with Pendragon. Uh, he might actually turn on his ally pretty much any day now. And this Malkavian uh, is kind of a power behind the throne in Boston, uh, which is the largest city in New England. He influences Prince uh, Quentin King III uh, and his vassalized fiefdom, uh, which is under a growing threat uh, by these different political factions in the area, notably the Gemini League and the Kindred of Liberty. Uh, and it builds a really good setting for political intrigue, so you get that aspect of Vampire the Masquerade uh, if you want to kind of play in this area. And finally, uh, there's this uh, Nasratu known as Warwick. Uh, now, this guy rolled into Providence, uh, Providence, Rhode Island, and put the prince and every other kindred to final death within a fortnight. Uh, but nobody knows that he did it. He's pretty uh, secretive and uh, crafty like that. And since then, only one kindred has entered Rhode Island uh, and not been killed. Uh, everyone else has died. Uh, and that, that kind of one that made it was also an Osferatu. So Warwick and his information, information gathering service called the Web provide uh, this kind of back, backdrop of mystery and investigation in New England. So you can see that uh, the writer of this section was pretty smart about uh, providing these kind of distinct uh, NPCs to work with depending on how you want to uh, present your chronicle. Uh, I think that was a really awesome idea and uh, just comes together very well. So uh, let's just keep going here and uh, discuss the book a little bit more. Now, I mentioned that there were a few other factions in Dark Colony uh, in the setting, and I'm kind of lukewarm about them, but let's take a look and uh, you know discuss how to make them a little bit better. And now, there's this one faction called the Kindred of Liberty, uh, and they're younger kindred that are organizing in Boston to overthrow their oppressive elders. Uh, this is an echo to the Sons of Liberty, which were, uh, you know, people uh, during the or prior to the American Revolution uh, that were inciting rebellion, essentially, against the uh, crown of England. These guys are just Anarchs of, of the setting, and I'm not sure why they don't just call them Anarchs in the first place. Uh, Kindred of Liberty is pretty cheesy branding, in my opinion. I don't know how you guys feel about it. To me, you could easily... I wouldn't want to have... Hmm. No, I, I guess it allows you the option if you wanted to present the Kindred of Liberty being some sort of more parliamentarian kind of kindred rather than being like proper anarchs who just want total freedom so mm. it, it, I think that really depends upon what you're in, what you how you want to interpret what their liberty means do they does liberty mean liberty from an oppressive uh, council of primogen and wanting some other form of of uh, of, of of leadership and and democracy maybe that's how I would run yeah. it, because that's how I run it for my Requiem game. I've got a bunch of <laughs> right vampires that want proportional representation. What crazy idiots! Um. <laughs> yeah, no, it's actually it's interesting, Chris, because one of the difference between like the Kindred of Liberty and the uh, Anarchs presented in the uh, the Anarch Cookbook or the Guide to the Anarchs from from Revised Vampire 
is that uh, they actually have a primogen council, okay. although no prince. So they have that sort of like a Senate representative yeah. kind of republic almost. Okay. Uh, and this is actually kind of cool because, you know, obviously there's going to be infighting amongst the primogen, which weakens this faction. And uh, also sets up uh, that these Anarchs could really just become the new Camarilla if they eventually overthrow uh, the Malkavians, Biltmore, and uh, Quentin King. So that's kind of a cool idea, I think. Hmm. And then there's this other faction called the Gemini League, and they're really basically just the remnants of the Camarilla uh, in the state of Connecticut. Uh, again, I'm not sure why they didn't just call them the Camarilla. Uh, they do have this kind of weird thing, uh, again, kind of branding, in that it's an alliance between the Ventru Princedom of the uh, cities of Hartford and New Haven, and also the Tremere Chantry uh, in Hartford. Okay. Yeah, so I guess that's kind of why they wanted to give them a different name. Yeah. There's not one singular leader. There's a it's a it's a tale of two cities kind of thing. Well, no, there is because for some reason they have a president oh, uh, right, okay. of the faction. I can't tell if he's elected or something. Uh, they weren't very clear in the uh, in the text. <laughs> but overall, they're fairly ineffectual and they've just been played for fools for the past hundred years. Uh, so that's unfortunate for them. And then there's also this faction they call the Crimson Tide up in Vermont. Uh, and they're literally just a rebranding of the Sabbat. The text even calls them the Sabbat pretty much all the time. So I'm not sure why they even put in that little confusion right there. I would say if if you you know if you're gonna have some branding there, then yeah, I would say I don't know if there's anything in particular you've read in there that would make you could pull out a particular aspect of Sabbat uh, of the Sabbat um, philosophy or or so forth and bring that further to the front of what represent what the crimson tide want the crimson tide sounds very um you know blood everywhere and everything so maybe uh maybe they're quite they're more of a militant faction i don't know whether that fits with what's in the book but or maybe yeah it's no else. it definitely does yeah and that's a good idea chris just kind of uh look at some aspects of the sabbat themselves and kind of bring those to the forefront and highlight them to give this crimson tide a uh, kind of unique nature themselves uh, and the other cool thing is there's actually three, count it, three witch cults presented in the book. They're all descended from uh, the same uh, witches of Salem, and they get progressively more infernal <laughs> uh, the further you get away from uh, Salem. Shit, okay. Uh, yeah, the text uh, presents them as the Nefandi from uh, Mage of the Ascension, uh, which are the you know infernal uh, uh, mages that worship uh, the Neverborn and uh, other like kind of deep umbral shadow entities. But I think you'd actually get a lot more mileage out of just making these guys into sorcerers per uh, War of the Darkness Sorcerers, that source book, mm-hmm. or also Sorcerer Revised from Age of the Ascension. Uh, that would just be uh, a lot better for kind of toning down their power level first off so that uh, they can be a reasonable threat uh, to, to Kindred in the setting. But it also kind of highlights uh, some of the similarities between the Sorceress Paths, and also the Tremere Thaumaturgy itself. Mm, okay. Um, with the Witch Cults, uh, how do the three differ in their kind of like philosophy or, or in their beliefs? Is it just that they're venerating different infernal beings? or? Uh, no, they have different uh, uh, texts, different, different um, okay. kind of grimoires that they use, and they kind of, one evolves out of the other, usually uh, after like one of the core leaders dies. Uh, and I think the final one, the the Cloven Hoof Cult, is has this sort of like uh, election thing that they do, where they try to uh, say that they are 
inheriting the power of the previous leader, which is kind of interesting and uh, a little unique. I did flip through uh, World of Darkness Sorcerer in preparation for this, and I couldn't actually find any information on these cults in there, so they unfortunately were not reprinted uh, or reanalyzed in that source book, which uh, yeah, it's kind of a shame because they, they seem interesting for this setting. So, yeah, that's all pretty cool. And there's actually two NPCs that I'd like to discuss, uh, which would be Quentin King III and Effie Feng. So I've seen a lot of people uh, use Quentin King III, Prince of Boston, but never as written. And I've, in fact, used him uh, in two games and never used him uh, how he was written uh, here in the book. So, so the authors uh, here made him an American Malkavian who presents himself as King Arthur, and has five vassalized princedoms under him, which are controlled by his Knights of the Round Table, who literally think that they're medieval knights. <laughs> right. Yeah, it's it's a little much. However, however, the idea of these kind of like feudal princedoms is awesome. It's a really cool idea in the modern knights. Because, uh, you know, these cities, uh, if you look at Google Maps or something, are within like 30 minutes to 60 minutes driving uh, from Boston. So it's easy enough for a prince to kind of control and influence this large city and uh, also uh, lay claim to these local cities. But if you think about it, he's probably going to need someone who's closer, kind of a proxy to administer any swift justice or, you know, uh, enforce the uh, the vampire traditions. So, you know, it makes a lot of sense to me. And uh, as we discussed earlier, you know, this is great for uh, a great setup to use in Europe, uh, where cities are also very densely packed. And you, know, you can just use it easily in Vampire the Requiem as well. Mm, I would totally tone down. They they all think they're actually the Knights of the Round Table. It's one thing to say use it for the the imagery again, branding and how they present themselves. Uh, I would actually, yeah, I'll be. I would actually have the Malkavium actually think to some degree he is Arthur reborn because why not? Because it's it's quite a. Um, but then you can build into that that the Malkavian maybe has a a more deep seated um, religious tone to him that maybe from when he was uh, a mortal, which persists to the modern age and it's now in this King Arthur thing. So it would be interesting to to giving him the the sabbat that maybe this uh, this Mal this Quentin King is actually actually does think he's on some sort of of uh, holy quest slash you know uh, uh, you know he's trying to convert vampires maybe he he represents a more a more christianized element of the camarilla or, or, or something like that yeah that definitely could be cool uh, another good aspect about uh, Quentin King is that he's kind of this puppet prince to Biltmore that Melkavian I mentioned before mm. who's part of the triad and it's kind of a cool setup where you have this this puppet prince who's being uh, supported and really kept in place by these uh, British Malkavian thugs uh, employed by this other guy. So, uh, you know, it kind of makes you wonder, like, why isn't Biltmore just taking the power for himself? But he's probably a bit too crafty and cunning in that regard because uh, he doesn't want to, uh, you know, get killed himself. Mm. Okay. Uh, the other interesting one of note is uh, Effie Feng, who is one of the Gaki Eastern Kindred uh, presented in the old A World of Darkness first edition source book from way back in 1991. Uh, she's pretty notable because uh, she's the only NPC ever written for this bloodline. Uh, and she can walk around in sunlight and has some really crazy discipline powers. Sounds, yeah, sounds really crazy. 
Yeah, it's uh, definitely, it was interesting that they uh, kind of stuck her in here, especially because I think one year later, they sort of replaced the Gaki with the Bushi, who are also samurai vampires. Yeah, Gaki are samurai vampires, by the way. Oh, right. And uh, oh, God. It, it all gets crazy. Oh. And yeah, sets everything up for Kindred of the East, of course. Mm, Which was so just that brand of, oh my God, no. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Cool. So uh, finally, just to kind of wrap things up here, there was also uh, this kind of mediocre adventure in the second half of the book known as Identity Crisis. It's very railroady in nature. And uh, the writer kind of realized this and tried to put in some ideas and sidebars for uh, debugging the adventure and getting the players back on track. But, you know, those kind of only go so far and it's going to take some work for any storyteller trying to run this. And it kind of uh, gives the player characters a tour of New England. Uh, they get to meet all the different major factions in the area, you know, the Crimson Tide, Kindred of Liberty, and of course, uh, you know, the uh, Triad themselves. Uh, and it gives them an opportunity to tip the tenuous balance in the region. Uh, and that's because the players meet and try to help a Kindred suffering from amnesia. And it turns out that he's a Tremere who unsuccessfully tried to summon and bind a Nexus Crawler. Okay, no. I'll just let that... No. <laughs> no. Yeah, I, I kind of agree with that, Matt. It's it's a cool... I, I see the reason why they went with this. They wanted to have this cool, like, Lovecraftian idea, this this otherworldly beast uh, that they're they're trying to summon and use. And yeah, definitely use the Nexus Crawler stat block uh, in this regard if you need to have the characters actually face him or uh, Die, send it or off against blame. someone else. Uh yeah, they they probably will. Um it's it's a very very dangerous an- antagonist. But yeah, try to I think make it something more alien and unique. Don't explain it to the characters obviously or just say, "Hey, this is an Nexus crawler." I mean, most every storyteller kind of already realizes that. Try to make it just a, a more unknown threat uh and maybe not even make it completely visible to the the players themselves. And I think if you do that, you've got a stronger adventure in that regard. Uh, another cool part is that there's actually this uh, flashback story. So uh, eventually your player characters get to the uh, uh, old Silverbrook mansion where the summoning uh, took place uh, in, in months past. The adventure gives you two options. Either the player characters get this uh, like two-page journal entry, which kind of explains what happens and uh, tells the players how to defeat the evil Tremere bad guy. Or, or it says that... Uh, you can take a couple of pre-gen mortal characters from from and back who are these frat boys that were murdered in the original summoning ritual and you actually get to play through the flashback uh, i think that's a really neat idea and it's a lot more interesting and engaging than the uh, journal entry itself and uh it can still convey all the same information but as well things get a little out of hand uh, and you might not be able to convey all the uh, particular weaknesses to the summoning ritual itself so i would advise to also just give them the uh, journal entries so they have all the information codified. But yeah, it, it seems like it's a, it's a pretty cool idea. What do you guys think about using that sort of a, a flashback scenario where uh, you grab some other characters and watch them die horribly? Um, I think it's pretty cool. Um, it's It makes it kind of its own game. Um, you, could, you could really lead the story to that point and then the next session or so is just that flashback story and keep it feel very self-contained yet still has some uh, influence on the net on the progression of the story as a total 
So yeah, that's pretty much Dark Colony. Uh, I think I need to go back and rewrite my review on Drive Through RPG. I should also apologize for leaving that two star review there for the past decade. Uh, so yeah, that's uh, that's gonna be my uh, afternoon, I guess. Hmm. It sounds like a cool cool book to use and has tons of utility in there for various different games, actually. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Uh, one thing we didn't mention, Matt, is of course that there is a uh, very active uh, Wendigo tribe in the uh, uplands of, I think, New Hampshire, maybe Vermont, probably both, uh, which is something else that you can actually interact with a little bit in the uh, Identity Crisis adventure, which uh, should be pretty interesting for uh, characters, given the uh, general dislike of lupines for uh, the kindred themselves. Well, it really depends on how they handle them, because, like, vampire lupine, they're basically forces of nature. They're like they double their physical stats when they shapeshift and do all sorts of other crazy things. And Wendigo probably wouldn't like vampires at all mm. because they're literally worm bringers. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, it's not the best. But, you know, it's still uh, an interesting option to uh to throw in there for uh, a scene or two. Cool. So that's all I got to say on Dark Colony. Pretty good book. And uh, you guys want to move over to the secret frequency? Yes, indeed. La Mancha Negra is something simple, yet so very deadly. It is a blight in Venezuela that has claimed over 1,800 lives in only five years. La Mancha Negra appeared as a black stain on a highway between Caracas, uh, the largest city in Venezuela, and its airport. At first, it was only 50 meters long, but workers soon realized its danger as their vehicles slid and skid. The dark gloss smudge was as slick as ice, despite its sticky texture to the touch. La Mancha Negra expanded and contracted with the heat and the cold weather growing to 100 meters of roadway, then to a kilometer, then to nearly 13 kilometers in length. La Mancha Negra spread off the roadway, slowly oozing over the surrounding silty soil. The stain particularly lurked in tunnels and hills, uh, making it tragically dangerous for drivers. The slick surface fooled drivers and caused accidents, damage, and death. The, the government could do nothing to combat La Mancha Negra. Pressurized water uh, could not remove it. Resurfacing the road did nothing. La Mancha Negra simply returned. The stain uh, was ever resistant, uh, even resistant, I should say, to scrubbing and detergents. And finally, in 1992, the government poured tons of powdered limestone on the roadway, covering the stain. However, this dust created such air pollution uh, as to make the region unbreathable during rush hour. La Mancha Negra has stumped scientists. It looks like a crude oil composite, uh, but that shouldn't be resistant to detergents. Perhaps it's volcanic, o it's, uh, volcanic oils from the asphalt aggregates, but surely that couldn't account for the volume and growth of the stain. One opportunistic politician even blames La Mancha Negra on pollution from the local homeless, using the tragic deaths of so many drivers to forcibly remove migrants from Caracas. In 2001, La Mancha Negra returned, 
uh, this time appearing in local streets of Caracas itself. With scientists and engineers stumped, uh, this makes a unique and interesting substance to use in your World of Darkness and Chronicles of Darkness games. So, Werewolf the Apocalypse is the obvious game to discuss, so let's talk about Werewolf the Forsaken a little bit. Uh, the Macho Degra possesses uh, a great threat to Uratha territory, since the accidents and confusion will attract a number of vicious spirits. Uh, so, while the wolf must hunt with fang and claw, perhaps the Mancha Negra uh, is not a problem that can be solved with violence. Maybe it's just a naturally occurring event. So, how can your pack reconcile with local spirits while still keeping their integrity intact? Uh, Prometheans themselves uh, might be rounded up in Caracas as uh, migrants when they're being forced out. And what kind of uh, issues can this have for pilgrimage? Uh, and after the streets have been cleaned, again using that in quotation marks, uh, how are they going to uh, be able to sneak back into the city to uh, complete any milestones that they need? And uh, do you guys remember the alien black oil from the X-Files? Yep. Yep. Yeah. So let's just steal that idea wholesale for our World of Darkness games. Maybe this substance not only kills drivers, but uh, leaks into the skin of survivors and uh, tries to control them. Uh, maybe the substance has been sent to the hedge by one of the uh, Changeling Lost's uh, gentry, uh, creating a legion of privateers from unwitting mortals. Uh, maybe the substance is leaking from the deep umbra, a boon to Nathandi that uh, tradition mages must uh, combat. And La Mancha Negra is uh, a different kind of threat for either of the Hunter settings. I mean, if you look at Hunter the Reckoning, what happens when one of the imbued is driving along and their second sight activates, and it's just showing them that the roadway, the asphalt itself, is wrong? Hmm. Pretty crazy stuff, guys. Any other good ideas for uh, the World of Darkness? Matt, I left it completely open for you to discuss this uh, for Werewolf the Apocalypse. Yeah, worm taint. I mean, I could just open up the Book of the Worm, turn to the page on Sludge, and start reading here. But, yeah, sounds like worm sludge. Because worm sludge turns whatever it touches into more worm sludge. It is horrible, oh. corruptive. It will give you cancer if it doesn't just turn you into sludge. It is not. <laughs> Whoa. Uh, that's interesting. One thing I was actually thinking about with uh, World of the Apocalypse is what if, you know, obviously Gaia itself in this area, there's a blight created by this uh, weaver construction and worm taint. What if this is some sort of reaction from the source of Gaia to try to heal? Um, and therefore, the Guru obviously wants this uh, this region to heal and uh, uh, clear off the the blight of the of the worm, but it's also simply killing people in the process. And uh, that kind of provides an interesting uh, moral dilemma for uh, your your local guru pack. Going back to Werewolf the Forsaken, uh, this is a manifestation of a Magath, so it's a spirit that is uh, a merger of two different spirits of conflicting form, uh, creating some weird mutating monstrosity of a spirit. And so in this case, it could be uh, the spirit of 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 some sort of uh, of the roadway or of um, or of travel or something like that related to to the roadway uh, combined with some parasitic cancerous type spirit 
Uh, it'd be interesting if this was Paul the Idigam. Uh, you, know, you could go for a very black, that could also work in with the black oil kind of X-Files thing. So this is a, a proto form of one of the Idigam uh, before it finalizes its, uh, its, uh, its the, the form that it takes uh, since it's returned from the moon. Um, it'd be a very weird uh, type of um, Pandoran. Uh, for Promethean, maybe that's what the sludge is, is a, a self-replicating type of Pandoran. Because um, Pandorans form this inactive state uh, when uh, a Promethean or there's no Pyros nearby to help uh, bring Pandoran to life. Uh, Chronicles of, uh, that's a great Going idea. to Chronicles of Darkness uh, with Bob Machine, uh, yeah, this is all some sort of weird infrastructure to uh, that's gone out of control. Again, it wants to use the roadway to uh, to um, to harvest uh, etheric energies and uh, from from uh, say road rage along that uh, that roadway, uh, and that has now uh, by whatever means has now spread and it's infecting the normal streets of the city, and so that road rage is now becoming street violence and. This is causing etheric energy to overspill into the city, which is um, in turn causing the god machine quite a lot of problems because many of the demons are uh, being empowered by it. But at the same time, it's obviously corrupting the humans around it, leading to perhaps so much etheric uh, energy, it's resonating with other infrastructure around it and revealing their true form. Um, Mage, uh, this is something to do with the abyss. Uh, this is some sort of abyss, uh, abyssal intrusion, uh, perhaps related to the very material uh, that has been mined to create the roadway. Uh, so perhaps where it's been mined from is a is a, uh, a nexus, uh, a point that leads to some fallen. Uh, Atlantean uh, temple which is oozing with uh, with uh, this necrotic, not necrotic, but kind of strange uh, abyssal ooze which maybe possesses people kind of like, I, I see it as kind of being like a, a, a black liquid kind of like um, kind of like uh, Venom from Spider-Man um, it's just looking for the perfect host if you go back to Vampire the Requiem in one of the earliest books of World of Chronicles of Darkness, New World of Darkness, was Antagonist, where you had this uh, living um, fungus which actively sought out vampires and would feed upon them and destroy them. So maybe this is a variant of that. Maybe it feeds on some other uh, supernatural creature. Maybe this is in fact uh, maybe this is in fact some manifestation of, um, I can't remember the name of the spiritual being, but it maybe this stuff kills mummies uh, mummy, in Mummy the Curse. Maybe it actively moves looking for their bodies because they are, mm. again, a form of undead and it feeds upon Sepikem. Uh, uh, or maybe it's something to do with Geist. Uh, I can't think in particular what it could be of Geist, but it'd be a very strange... Maybe it's a manifestation of a very particular Avernian gate that leads into a domain known as the, the Streets of Hell, which is basically, imagine the uh, crisscrossing network of, of motorways in LA, and 
and magnify that and overlay it multiple times uh, in in crazy dimensions and distortions of reality in Escher-like networks uh, in an un underworld domain led by a Keraboy who takes the form of uh, of a flesh-like. Um, I know, pick your favorite sports car, basically. Yeah, sounds pretty cool. All right, is that it with this uh, secret frequency? Um, I think it's a pretty good one. I like it. Yeah, definitely. Uh, special thanks to uh, listener Bryce uh, Piercy for uh, sending that one over to us. Uh, definitely appreciate it. I think I've done enough talking, guys, so why don't you two move on over to the Chronicles of Darkness segment and uh, talk a little bit about uh, Demon of the Descent. Indeed. World of Darkness 2.0. So, Matt, you've um, delved into this book a lot more than I have. Um, so, why don't you open up with what uh, uh, the uh, Heirs to Hell is all about? Well, Heirs to Hell is all about playing the descendants of demons. Not specifically the children of demons, but they can be, and because of the nature of demons, it results in some very interesting situations. But the idea being that demon blood, so to speak, can stick around for generations, and you could be a latent... There's three states of being. There's the latent, the offspring, and the fractals. And yeah. offsprings are the most common. They're, a, you know, your father was a demon or you are descended from a demon and at some point you became aware of the workings of the god machine and rather than become stigmatic, your demon blood turned on and you became an offspring as well. So it's all kind of, I mean, let's. I think it's maybe rather than talking about in terms of blood, it's all about leftover programming almost, which gets turned on or off uh, because demons are kind of like machines and computer programs and viruses in that way. Right, like they, they talk about it in terms of like genes. Yeah. Like you can have an offspring gene, but mm. the idea being that if you are the descendant of a demon, meaning only one of your parents was a demon, you have two offspring genes. So yeah. it doesn't really work out the way that normal inheritance is supposed to work, nor is it supposed to, because demons are quantum beings. Like, they can just say this is true, and it becomes true. Yeah. So, the actual creation of someone that is part demon is quite, as I say, is quite interesting for, for Demon Descent, because demon in Demon the Descent, demons have their demon form, they all have their covers, uh, some of these covers are fully fleshed uh, people that they've they've essentially uh, removed from reality and taken over their identity, and some are patchwork identities that they've they've created, taking elements from different people in return for uh, some sort of boon that they give that person in return. So, you know, you could be you could be the father or mother of a child of one of these demon-born. Um, simply because you, you took over an identity, which was that person, that father or mother, or um, your, your 
the 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 identity you have then obviously go inside goes on and through that identity to keep up their identity establishes a relationship with someone and has a family or one of your identities one of your covers go you, you in that cover you uh, by accident uh, you know uh, conceive uh, a child which then is either you know, you're the father or mother of or because as we go back to the patchwork identity uh, patchwork covers you have by whatever means um, you've made a pact with someone and so that 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 child that the concept of that child concept of how a child relates to that person has been shifted onto one of your onto your patchwork cover so it is now your child and that means that child from right thinking that that child before they were born would have been normal but by the very act of of making this pact you've you've basically altered reality so that now they have a part of your demonic nature built into into their into their kind of framework right like that's the idea of selling your firstborn son to the devil yeah that you are saying that this this is your child now you are taking that part of their identity and making it a part of yourself but there's also that bleed back that this is now your child, and as your child, it is now an offspring of a demon. Goes through a lot of things. Obviously, it talks about the offspring, latents, and fractals, and, and the distinctions between those. And then, of course, it gets into the the messy fun of how does a demon deal with family? Because obviously, you have uh, you've got the case of that a demon has a cover in which it is the father to a child, and either it, it maintains that family, or you've got maybe the the more interesting where one of the covers of, of the demon is actually is, is female and thus is the mother to the child. And so there's a question of when you switch between your covers, how does pregnancy get dealt with, which can be quite curious. There are some interesting conditions how that turns up, uh, whether, that pre that, whether that external nature of pregnancy is carried between covers or carried between even the genders of covers. Um, and of course, uh, so you get this whole idea of shunted offspring, quantum pregnancy. You know, there are all these different conditions which uh, build into the game to how you depict. Uh, right, like there is an instance described in one of the sections where, like, a demon fathers a child, finds out he's pregnant, and then his the mother of his child dies. And he uses the quantum nature of the child to shunt it into one of his female covers. Yeah, that's really like really really cool. That, um, yeah, that's such a, an interesting kind of idea. Um, so obviously you got the lead up to you know conception of a child and all the fun about that. And then of course there is how do you deal with you? Know, you've got this child that is part demon. What is their life like? Uh, how do they, how do they um, come to know their powers and deal with them? And of course, how do you deal with the, the people that would want to exploit such a, a powerful human? Um, so, uh, Matt, I think you want to pick out in particular in that section that you found quite uh, interesting. Well, my real things I liked about that was like the powers of the. Uh offspring and how they interacted with the world and that kind of thing. 
if you want to talk about like how the world tries to exploit them, you can go on to that. Hmm. I mean, there's a whole thing about that. These these uh, demon children, or even the orphan. It talks about obviously you've got demon children who are orphans. Um, that you may have some demons that work out that it's better for their cover to adopt this orphan. So again, they get that builds into the idea of a pact because it works into their their cover they're trying to develop where they're the parent to some child and they would rather be a, a parent to a, a demon child because it works. It gives them some sort of advantage uh, to have someone that has that type of power. Um, and that, uh, of course, you have to be careful of the fact that there are many different insidious cults of humans and and uh, and other operatives that may be cults that work for the god machine that that want to get hold of of uh, these demon-born children to use and exploit uh, for various things. So, is there anything more to add there, Matt, or do you want to talk about some of the interesting uh, bits of well, how you represent in game the uh, the demon children? Well, there was this one idea of a um, one of the example organizations that try and help and protect the demon children was um, a um, yeah, it was in a, in a, a youth academy. And it was originally run by a demon in a human cover as just like a place for them to come and be safe because their unique problems would go unnoticed in a place where the teachers and the administrators knew what was going on and didn't raise the attention of the god machine. Mm. But his human cover got too old, so he had to step down. And the new guy who took over is more of a cultist and like thinks that the demon blooded are the key to defeating the god machine so he's like trying to breed them together to create a new messiah and oh wow brilliant and it's just getting really really creepy mm. i got a question okay okay here's a here's a weird scenario could a could one demon have sex with another demon thus impregnating the other demon and then the impregnated demon gives their cover that's impregnated to the other demon, <laughs> therefore making a demon both mother and father. Yes. yes. I don't know why you'd ever want to also, do this. Although that child would be a fractal, but that's not even the weirdest thing that can happen oh. to a demon-blooded child. Oh what my can gosh. Happen is Please, tell me more. If a demon impregnates somebody, then they have to go loud and blow their cover of the father, but mm. they still want to be the father of the child they have another male cover. They shunt over so that now that is so now that new cover is the father of the child. The child genetics change to match the new father. Hmm. I just love that Rose Bailey sat down and was like, alright team, we're going to codify everything that could happen here. But once the child is born and becomes fact, nothing, nothing else matters. It is while the child is yet to be born that it's quantum nature messes with the demon parents. Because, uh. like, there's a whole list of things that can happen. Like, if a, like, and, like, it's all, you know, chosen by the players. Like, it's not the storyteller can say, you know, this happens. Oh, you were going to do that? Nope, this happens. But things like, um, 
if a someone would go loud, like if something would happen where they would need to go loud and blow that cover, it is like it stops it from happening because the child wants to live. But they still but because they tried to go loud, they gain a point of compromise. Or like they mm. can't do they can't use a demon power or gain compromise because that would harm the child. And things like that. And one of the example one of the um intro fictions for a chapter involves a demon calling in a soul pact five years early because she her she was pregnant the demon was pregnant but had to go loud and needs a new cover pretty much immediately to house the soul of her child. Ah, Demon of the Descent. This is like the Stanley Kubrick World of Darkness <laughs> game. I love it. Yeah, like I said before, Demon of the Descent is the best game that I'm fairly certain I do not know how to play. I think that is... Yeah, I will I will second that. I, I mean, there's a lot in there that I really want to use, but I haven't yet worked out what my chronicle is. I, I know I want to run it set in Berlin, but I haven't worked out what the the story is because I feel like there's a lot to do with infrastructure to set up that story. Anyway, shall we deal with um, how you make your 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 demon blooded child? Right. Well, uh, like I said, there are latents, and latents are just like you know you have demon blood, yeah. and if you go stigmatic, instead of going normally stigmatic, you turn into an offspring. They really don't get anything more than that. A latent is just, if you go stigmatic, you become offspring, which is, you know, a good way to do the kind of thing where, you know, oh, hey, this suddenly happened. I'm this now, which is, you know, a trope in White Wolf games going back as far as 1990. Yeah. I guess it's a nice way to introduce into a game if you want to start some people out as playing human characters and yet somehow integrate them into it and it just so happens that the reason why they're with the, the other demon characters is because they they actually, you know, they were meant to go stigmatic but actually were latents. Right. Um, and I think that's, pretty, that's a pretty neat way of incorporating uh, more variety into your ring of characters. Um... So what else should we cover them, Matt, on, uh, yeah, on, on characters? Then? What happens with Offspring is that one thing that is very different is that they gain an embed. They gain a demon power. Yeah. So it, it does not cost Aether. Like, it can't be a power that costs Aether unless they have the ability to use Aether, but that's a whole other thing. But they have the ability to use the infrastructure. They also have Unseen Sense God Machine, like all stigmatics have. Mm -hmm. But the other thing they have is they there are a list of... It's called the Demon-Blooded Cipher, which is how aware of you the God Machine is and how much the God Machine is using you in his plants. But the more the God Machine notices you the more power you get. It's like the cipher of demons, where like as they get more powerful, they unlock more embeds and interlocks. But in this case, it's because the god machine is noticing you and giving you more power as a part of basically betting against you eventually becoming an activated agent of the god machine. Mm. 
But one thing that you can do is, as you notice that you are becoming more notable, if you can sneak your way into an infrastructure, you can hack the god machine and backtrace your condition to make yourself less noticed. Hmm. And if you're feeling particularly... uh, If you're not feeling very particularly moral, you can dump that notice onto another supernatural or another demon. And demons really don't like it when you do that. Yeah. I think the, the nice thing you've already said about they're able to hack into the god machine, um, it, it really, again, I think that where demon and mage kind of ha- seem to sit in quite neatly together in how they kind of treat reality and, and the, the kind of curious things they can do, um, latents and offspring... Uh, and fractals sit quite well with the um, with the cultists or whatever the acolytes I have for in Mage Second Edition. So um, you can you can get some quite a lot of diversity in the type of parties there. Um, so okay, so demons uh, demon offspring have embeds, which is neat. Um, there's also something they can get around compromises because they don't have a cover to to risk. Um, so that's well, rather no, well, if it, they do comp- if they do get compromised, that moves them along the yeah, blades. Yeah. Um, and then we've got a little bit on their integrity and breaking points, which again are going to be slightly altered because, as a demon-blooded person, as an offspring, uh, you know, you, you've been exposed to a certain degree of the supernatural world, so certain things aren't going to drive you crazy and call for a breaking point. Um, so again, there's a list of of uh, things which can modify your breaking point rules. Uh, the fact that de- the demon blooded uh, do do share certain things. So as you said, they've got unseen sense. Uh, they have some form of quantum understanding. So well, actually... that's a thing. That's a thing that's kind of weird. Is that that <laughs> my one complaint about the book? is that they give a list of all these things that it says, like, oh, yeah, these are a bunch of things that demon bloods can do, but you can't actually do any of them without the appropriate merits. Yeah. So only fractals can buy the quantum understanding merit. But I think quantum understanding is really neat, so you can go ahead, go ahead and explain that. So it's a, so a demon, in demon descent, demons are able to lie perfectly. So... Um... And essentially, then uh, this allows um, one of the uh, one of the demon blooded to sense whether a demon is telling one of these perfect lies or not. They're able to see through and see the absolute truth in the statements. Uh, so that's quite useful because that actually means then if you're playing one of these half demon half humans, you're you're able to properly interact with demon players within the character group without them just telling you lies and you having to roleplay that they're lying to you perfectly. So I think I think that kind of gets around some of those issues for you. Um, what else have we got then in character well, creation? We haven't actually described what fractals are. Yes, okay, let's go with that because that's kind of a, a big thing. Like, fractals are the children of two demons, and unlike, like, offspring who normally come into their powers around adolescence, 
fractals are half blood from birth. Like, and they can see through their parents' cover, mm-hmm. and they don't care. Like, yes, mommy is made entirely of gears and screaming beetles. Mommy is a beautiful, beautiful person. <laughs> yeah. So they they have basically a more innate um, attachment to uh, what demons are, to uh, to their embeds, uh, and to the world around them. So they from s- birth, they already know the world is broken and weird in in all its variety of ways. And they are also unique, and that's also causes unique problems to them because they don't know that that is supposed to be weird. Yeah, and they start off an additional step down the demon-blooded cipher, which means they get more power. They have more power, but they're very. But it's way easier for the god machine to notice them doing things. Yeah. So, um, anything more to say on character creation than that? No, I mean, there's a bunch of other little fiddly things that they can do, but most of that is just merits, and the important stuff noticed about them is just, like, how offspring and fractals work and how how much I love the idea of basically fractals being born demons and being like, oh, yeah, but whatever. Well, not born demons, but they're so aware of the world that they just blithely accept it as fact. Yeah. So the final chapter in the book is some more things you can drop into your games of demons straight away. Um, so it's obviously there's the list of, and more details of course on the pregnancy conditions and and, uh, and more detail on, on what that means for your characters. Uh, then there's a number of sample uh, demon-blooded characters, so we've got some latent, some offspring, a fractal, so you can get an idea of what these characters are like, and you could potentially use in your in your game straight away. Uh, and then we have um, what else do we have, Matt? After the uh, after those characters, we've got these uh, list of assimilated offspring. So yeah, these are like these are the organizations yeah. that try to help or exploit the uh, the offspring, and that's where that academy I talked about earlier is yeah. from. So you've got essentially some. Some example. So you've got examples of organisations that make use of demon blooded or are made up of demon blooded, and you have some story hooks on how to make use of uh, a demon blooded character in your game. So you can showcase uh, the weirdness of the world around them, or uh, or or showcase to demon players how these types of characters do exist in their world and what it means for them. Uh, I mean, overall, it's as a short, very you know, as a 40 page, 40 odd page book, um, to add a, a new type of character type into games of Demon or potentially into a, a game like, Chron- into a normal Mortals game of Chronicles of Darkness. Because uh, you can quite easily have such a, a character uh, fit in with, um, you know, they masquerade as, say, uh, some sort of uh, mystic or, or psychic even. Um, so you could you could quite easily use use these characters in a game where the majority of the other players are are, are just simply mortals, uh, or you could have them as a curiosity that turns up in say uh, in mage, uh, or 
I could see them potentially fitting into uh, potentially even fitting into Werewolf. They they would be an interesting pack member, actually, because they would they would have a, a whole different outlook on the world and skill set, which for for a bunch of werewolves would um, would uh, give them an a, a, an additional uh, claw to use against their enemies. Right, um, and also the uh, werewolves would be a tool for the fractal or offspring to use against their pursuers because as they get more powerful eventually they're going to get you know age angels and agents of the god machine coming yeah. after them to try and push them along the cipher until they become activated yeah um i mean potentially i mean you'd have to jig around the rules of course cuz uh, mummy the curse runs off uh, the first edition rules but again you could they could be a member of of uh, a mummy's cult, uh, and also, if we think of Vampire the Requiem, there is a covenant of vampires which, of course, venerate and interact with the God Machine. So again, there is room to to use these characters as as interesting allies of vampires who are members of those covenants. Of, well, of that covenant in particular. Uh, how you would use it in Geist? I have no idea. I don't know how you would use it. But again, you know, you, in Geist you're, you're more or less humans uh, and here's another person that's more or less human. You just perceive the world in very different ways. Um, and again, that could be because you've got someone that is actively working against the machinations of the God Machine versus a group of Sin Eaters who have to deal with the fallout of of what the God Machine has done because obviously people have died due to infrastructure and their ghosts are very strange maybe in that they, they display mechanical workings in their ghosts and that's unusual until they realise there's a link to this eldritch uh, machine-like entity. Have I missed a game that it could be used in? Changeling? Hmm. I, I'm not really sure in... If Changeling can interact with the God Machine Chronicles in any way, then I guess they could interact with the Demon Blooded. But in that way, they really would be much that much different than Stigmatics. It's just you mm. know bringing the attention of the God Machine to the Changelings, and but I don't know. I mean, God Machine doesn't really interact with changelings. I would be, if I was an asshole bunch of changelings, I would use a stigmatic to bring the attention of the god machine onto the attention, uh, onto the gentry. <laughs> yeah. And just let the two fly at each other. <laughs> that would be, that wouldn't be a very nice place for that particular demon blooded to be. Oh, there. no, no. But I'm saying if you, you're not playing as one, but at least uh, a group of changelings, if they realized there was another power out there that was some other entity that that was actually, in some respects, very, in some respects, quite the opposite of the, of the gentry. You know, you, the gentry are, are tied to fate and so forth and, and and dreams, and the god machine is, if anything, far more material in its nature and and uh, and 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 rigid. Um, it would be interesting to 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 tell out tell that story and have a bunch of players come to the conclusion that they could set fire against boiling acid and see what would happen and see what would win. 
So, I think that's that's basically anything. Any last comments, Mike, Matt? I mean, Matt, you've read it more. Is there any other things that you want to highlight? Well, there was one thing that was mentioned in the book, and I'm not really sure if it's a good thing or not, but right. the idea that the god machine allowed the demons to fall so that the demon-blooded would be created because uh, they yeah. his perfect servants. And I'm not really sure how if I like that or not because on the one hand, it's like, really long planning the kind of thing the god machine is, but on the other hand it really cheapens that fundamental act of free will that creates demons in the first place. That's, though, the question of whether a demon has fallen due to its own action or it was something planned by the god machine is is a is a philosophical question that's put in Demon the Descent. So, Again, I guess it gives you the idea that if you're playing a demon, especially one that's an integrator, because obviously they believe they've fallen for a purpose and wish to reintegrate with the god machine, yet still have control over themselves and what they do, then they may well see the action of their character having a child, having one of the demon-blooded um, as a child. May it may they may reconcile that as that was the reason why they fell was that the they were actually they're actually part of a grander infrastructure to bring this demon child into existence yeah indeed it's a good idea for one character maybe like a small group of characters but not uh for the fallen the unchained as a whole um yeah so it could be just like a cool small idea for your game uh just for one particular npc or player character cool i think um so that was cool to hear about uh thanks for reviewing that guys and uh Let's move on over to uh, some closing remarks. Um, if you want to uh, send us an email, maybe uh, send us over a secret frequency, uh, you can send us over an email at uh, darkerdaysradio at gmail.com. Uh, we're also on Facebook, facebook.com slash darkerdaysradio. And then, of course, Twitter, which is at darkerdaysradio. And then there's the Google Plus community, which is uh, always a good time. Uh, yeah, um... I can't think of much else, is there? Uh, no. Um, obviously, if you go on the blog, there's typical updates of anything um, painting-wise or things that we're playing through. Um, and because Mike, you you have all your uh, you, you had all your Ravenloft actual plays written up there. So I yep, will mostly correct. write up um, my uh, Iron Kingdoms actual play when that happens in the next month or so. And hopefully off the back of that, I'll have a new gaming group ready to roll, and I will play, I don't know, maybe some maybe some Fading Suns, or maybe, I'm thinking, I might... It's looking likely I might delve back into Changeling the Lost sooner rather than later. Changeling the Lost Season 3? It'll be Season, season two. 2. It'll be, the, uh, it'll be the, um, it'll be the gentry coming to Venice finally to uh, have some fun. Long yeah. awaited, indeed. Um... Yeah, so I think that's pretty much it. Um, Matt, do you got any fun things planned in the interim? Uh, not particularly. I'm mostly reading books and writing re- and writing reviews or reading books for this uh, for the podcast. Don't really get to game much anymore. Hmm. You need to change that. We need to change that. We need to do an online game at some point. Mike, we still need to do that Warhammer Fantasy Mordheim game. Oh my gosh! I've, there's a lot of games I've been challenged to uh, run, and uh, I'll see what I can do, guys. I'll see if I can find some yeah. time. All right, cool. 
great episode, everyone. Uh, thank you very much, and listeners, good night. Yeah.